This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you, Grace, and uh, thank you all for being here, not just because you had to brave the elements to do so. Um, I can't recall a time when death has been a more prominent fixture in our thoughts and daily conversations than it is currently, and I can appreciate why many would skip a talk with this title, instead seeking whatever small respite they can from thinking about death altogether. But rest assured, um, the sense of the question, why do we die, that concerns me today, isn't a question that can be answered by a New York Times infographic or by reading a life insurance agent's actuarial table. Um, my concern, perhaps unsurprisingly, is a much more general philosophical question. Now, as far as our understanding is concerned, life and death are united. Um, according to the two philosophers whose views I'm going to focus on today, namely uh, Aristotle and Aquinas, life and death are contraries or opposites. And like all contraries, one, one acquires the concepts as a pair. Indeed, Aristotle describes death simply as life's limit. And in the vast majority of cases, life and death are yoked not only in mind, but in world. Um, to live for terrestrial organisms is to possess a soul, and to die is to cease being in soul. But both Aristotle and Aquinas are adamant. They agree that life does not entail death. Though their conceptions of God and the divine differ radically, Aristotle and Aquinas agreed that God is both alive and necessarily eternal. Aristotle claims, um, there are some quotes on the handout, I won't always point to them when I refer to them, but uh, Aristotle claims that the actuality of God is immortality, which is everlasting life. And Aquinas insists that life in the highest degree pro uh, is properly in God. So our knowledge of life and death may be coeval, but there's at least one living being that isn't subject to their sequential realization. And this leads to the sense of the question, why do we die, that I care about. Um, some human beings live longer than others, but this can't be extended indefinitely. Why is this so? Um, why can't we be the exception? Why can't we be immortal? Now, there are several reasons why I'm choosing to discuss this question by an ex uh, examining the views of Aristotle and Aquinas, um, not only because I've thought about them probably more than many other philosophers, but the main reason is that they share a view about the metaphysics of living organisms that will allow us to frame two distinct kinds of answer to my guiding question. Both accept what's called hylomorphism. Um, individual substances, such as living organisms, are in some sense composites of matter and form. Now, to specify something's form is, uh, among other things, to specify what that thing is, essentially. Um, an organism's form, that is a soul, is both the cause of its being and the end for the sake of which its specific way of living occurs. But this form is realized materially. An organism's specific vital activities are, are realized through the movements of an instrumental living body. And the framework hylomorphism provides, it's useful because the two main answers to our question lay the blame for our mortality on matter and form respectively. Do we die because we're embodied? because we're made up of a kind of matter that necessitates our senescence and eventual death? Or do we die because we're the specific kind of beings that we are? Is it our very humanity rather than our materiality that's primarily responsible for our being mortal? 
Now, according to the dominant interpretation of both Aquinas and Aristotle's answers to this question, you know, among scholars, we die because we, unlike God, are hylomorphic composites of matter and form, and they focus on material causes, right? Material causes suffice to explain both our aging, our senescence, and death. Um, I'm going to call this view the material cause account of death. And according to the material cause account of death, an organism's tissues possess the same sort of material properties and capacities that inanimate bodies do. And the unhindered exercises of these capacities will, over time, disrupt the organism's vital activities and undermine its bodily unity. Um, a human dies because she, or rather her soul, can no longer resist the movements grounded in her tissue's material character. An organism's matter and form are, on this account, engaged in a constant struggle. And in this eternal struggle, matter always prevails. But there's an alternative uh, interpretation possible, which I'm going to call the formal account of death. And on the formal account of death, it's an organism's form, its soul, that's ultimately responsible for its mortality. In this view, the coming to be development and full realization of a ensouled organism is a unified natural activity. But this activity is intrinsically unstable. It's the form of life we realize that guarantees that we will die. Being in matter does not, as such, inconsistent with immortality, but being a human or an animal or a plant of any species is. Now, I think interpreters are right to attribute the material cause account of death to Aquinas. Um, I'm a little less sure about whether it captures Aristotle's view. And what I'd like to do today is say something about how these two approaches to death and life differ from one another and also talk about which alternative better reflects the views of the, the two philosophers um, that concern me. But rather than settle the issue decisively, I have a slightly more modest aim. Um, I'm going to argue that the key to adjudicating between these two accounts of death lies in how we answer what might initially seem to be an unrelated question. What is an agent responsible for when she acts voluntarily? not just any agent, a master craftspeople in particular. So my plan is not to determinately answer the question, why do we die? Though I do have opinions about this. Um, but I do hope what I say makes the path one needs to traverse to answer it more attractive. So first, uh, going through the accounts, I'll start with the material cause account. Now, on this view, in organisms' tissues, they possess the same material capacities that any inanimate body does. And according to Aristotle, and Aquinas agrees with this, all material capacities are ultimately reducible to three pairs of properties, hot, cold, wet, dry, and heavy and light. Um, and so in organisms' tissues, like any inanimate body, it's going to possess a determinate value for each of these, a determinate amount of heat, moisture, and um, weight, right, heaviness and lightness. And it's the last pair that's going to be my main focus. Um, heavy and light are locomotive capacities. That is, if something is light, say fire, it will, if nothing external prevents it from doing so, move by nature to a natural location at the periphery of the terrestrial realm. They move up, right, outwards, um, towards the heavens. And in contrast, heavy bodies, say like Earth, move by nature to a location at the center of the cosmos to us downward. Now, the exercises of our tissues material capacities, if they're left unchecked, would undermine our bodily unity. So 
Our bone, they think, is predominantly earthen, and it would move to a location close to the cosmos' center, that it has a tendency to move down by nature, whereas our flesh is comparatively fiery and would move to a higher location. And so their question uh, obviously comes up, um, how does an organism persist in the face of these material tendencies? Why aren't all of our tissues just moving in opposite directions? And Aristotle, he raises this very question. This is uh, T5 on the handout. He says, what is it that holds together tissues that possess the material capacities of, of fire and earth, given that they tend in opposite directions? For they will be torn apart unless there's something to prevent them. And his answer, he says, if there is, then this is the soul and the cause of growth and nourishment. Now, the soul's influence, it's not absolute. Our tissues are constantly striving to achieve their material capacities ends. And when they're successful, they can on occasion be, at least locally, um, a bit of matter will escape and be free of the soul's influence once and for all. So as a consequence, there's a continuous kind of flowing out of matter from our tissues. And replenishing this matter, it's one of the nutritive soul's principal duties, right? It's one of the reasons we eat is to replace the matter that somehow escaped um, our bodies. And upon death, our tissues no longer suffer the soul's external check at all and can exercise their material capacities with the freedom typical of completely inanimate bodies. Um, this natural movement is what we call putrefaction. Now, the effectiveness of the soul's resistance, it diminishes with age, and this is to be expected. Um, Aristotle thinks that the soul's struggle against material decay is a toilsome enterprise, and says that a life of the soul cannot be free from pain or blessed, since it is in fact accompanied by force in its movement. And this is why it's reasonable <coughs> to say, this sums things up in T7, the incapacities of animals are all contrary to nature, for example, old age and decay. For it seems the whole formation of an animal is made up from the sort of things that differ in terms of their proper places, since none of its parts occupies its own region. So the natural activity of life, the activity of a living, or, um, you know, a living organism to better or more completely realize its form, what we're up to in living, it's an activity that directly conflicts with the material ends of its body's tissues. At best, an ensouled organism's natural activity temporarily overcomes its body's pervasive material movements. And Aquinas agrees. Um, Aquinas even thinks that this is, was true of humans when they lived without fear of death in Eden. Um, the material ends of Adam's body and Adam's natural end as a human being were just as opposed as ours are. It was only through a supernatural gift of grace that Adam's soul could prevail over his matter in perpetuity. Uh, in T8, Aquinas says, for man's body was indissoluble, not by reason of any intrinsic vigor or immortality, but by reason of a supernatural force given by God to the soul, whereby it was enabled to preserve the body from all corruption, so long as it remained itself subject to God. Now, of course, in sinning, Adam proved himself unworthy of such a benefit, but the rejection of God's gift through sin didn't make Adam mortal. It allowed his antecedent mortality to proceed as it already was. Now, this seems like pretty good evidence for attributing the material cause account to both Aristotle and Aquinas. <laughs> um, uh, and we can see again in Aristotle in T9, kind of a, a statement to the view. He says, 
All things are at all times in a state of transition and are coming into being or passing away. The environment acts on them either favorably or antagonistically, and owing to this, things that change their situation become more or less enduring than their nature warrants. But never are they eternal when they contain contrary qualities, for their matter is an immediate source of contrariety. So what of the what to make of the alternative account of death, right? What would it mean to say that it's an organism's form that plays a, a central role in being the, the cause of its mortality? Now, there's one thing it, it can't mean that um, both Gerson and Aquinas agree it doesn't mean. Death isn't included in the account of an organism's form. Um, that is, death is not an end for the sake of which a plant or an animal or a human being lives. We shouldn't mistake the end for the sake of which an activity occurs with the activity's final temporal stage or limit. Aristotle mentions this in T10. He says, nature is the end or that for the sake of which. For if a thing undergoes a continuous change towards some end, that last stage is actually that for the sake of which. That is why the poet was carried away into making an absurd statement when he said, he has the end for the sake of which he was born. Poets referring to someone who died. For not every stage that is last claims to be an end, but only that which is best. So the poet Aristotle um, mocks here, takes death to be a living organism's end because death is the inevitable final state or limit of all terrestrial beings. Um, but an organism does not live for the sake of dying. An organism comes to be for the sake of its form. The extent to which an organism achieves its natural end is the extent to which it realizes its form, and this form is the good for the sake of which all of its natural movements occur. The soul is its own natural end, and death is, for the ensouled uh, individual that suffers it, unnatural. So there's nothing about our form, about what we are itself, that entails our mortality. As far as our forms are concerned, death is gonna be unnatural. And this is clearly also uh, Aquinas's view. In T11, he says, as regards his form, incorruption is more natural to man than to other corruptible things. But since that very form has a matter composed of contraries, from the inclination of that matter, there results corruptibility in the whole. In this respect, man is naturally corruptible as regards the nature of his matter left to itself, but not as regards the nature of his form. So there's nothing about our forms in their cells, if you describe what's essential to us or what it is to be a human being, that would make death inevitable. It's not part of an account of what a human is, that it's something that dies. Okay. But there is another way for another, uh, an organism's form to be causally relevant to death. And we can see this by focusing on the role an organism's form plays in explanations of its organs' functions, of the, the parts of its body's functions, and also the material character of those organs and parts. The explanations that Aristotle and Aquinas offer employ what's called, uh, commonly called, hypothetical necessitation. Now, what does this mean? Um, the determination of both an organ's function and its material capacities depends on the role the organ's coming to be serves in the coming to be the organism to which it belongs. Um, an organ's natural function is a capacity whose existence is explained by the role it plays in the generation and persistence of uh, a complete organism. And moreover, if an organ 
is to come to be with its essential or hypothetically necessary natural function, it must have a particular material constitution. Now, on the handout, um, I try and write some of this out in the most precise way I can. One negative consequence of being precise is that the prose becomes completely incomprehensible. <laughs> um, I, will, I will read it out and I give a schema for what these arguments look like, but it will be better just to look at the example of an argument, which is what I'll focus on. So here's the, the unintelligible statement. Um, an organ's function is to A if it comes to B for the sake of A, and an organ comes to B for the sake of A, or whatever it's doing, if and only if the organ's generation is part of the existent exercise of a capacity that's irreducibly a capacity whose end is a specific form of life, and the complete realization and perpetuation of an individual with this specific form of life requires an organ that possesses a capacity to A. Okay. So what would any of this mean? Um, let's look at the example, which um, is an instance of a kind of general way of arguing that he employs Aristotle throughout his biological works. Um, so you begin with a hypothesis. That's part of the hypothetical necessity. The hypothesis here is a human being comes to be. And you want to see what must be the case if that hypothesis would uh, be realized. So what you have to begin with in these explanations is what a human being is. So one thing that's essential to human life, the activity in which our being consists, is seeing. Right? Seeing is an activity essential to human life. So if a human being is going to come to be, it has to have an organ that is for the sake of seeing. We call this an eye. And then he goes further. Well, look, um, in order for an eye to see, in order for it to have that function, it needs to have certain properties in this case, being transparent. On their view, to see, you need to receive sensible forms without matter. You couldn't do this if it weren't transparent. Um, um, the only materials available that an eye could come to be from that would give it that property of transparency are ones that are, in this case, watery. I guess airy ones could too, but they wouldn't um, have other features that an eye would need. So bodies with a, a fluid character are transparent, so the eye is realized in a watery material. And then you can keep going. He says, well, look, in order for an eye with a fluid character to persist, there has to be another organ, an eyelid, that's for the sake of protecting it. And similar reasoning occurs. It would have to be solid, and the only materials available that you could make that out of would be earthen. And so that's what the explanation for that material character is. So the coming to be of an individual that instantiates a, a specific form of life is going to hypothetically necessitate in this way the coming to be of organs with certain form-determined natural functions, right? What someone is is playing the primary explanatory role. The form is determining. And the coming to be with a form-determined natural function, that's also going to necessitate in this hypothetical way that the organ be realized in tissues that possess a certain form-determined set of material capacities, right? Our tissues come to be with the specific material characters that they have for the sake of the complete realization of an organism with the, the, the former soul that it has. The very soul for the sake of which these tissues come to be is, once they have come to be, the natural principle and end of all their material movements. Now, I've already mentioned that death, as they view it, uh, Aristotle and Aquinas, it's ultimately due to a sort of mismatch, right? a mismatch between an organism's natural end and the material ends of its bodily tissues. And the question is where we lay the blame, as it were. Do we die because of the exercises of our material capacities? Or do we die because our form causes our tissues to have those material capacities in the first place? 
Now, before I attempt an answer, it's important to note very briefly that there needn't always be a mismatch between something's formal and material natures. Um, there's at least one case where being in matter isn't incompatible with being eternal, at least according to um, Aristotle Aquinas. And this one case um, where nature's end and matter's end are identical are the heavenly bodies. Um, so to be a heavenly body, all the stars and planets that are circulating uh, around us in the center of the cosmos um, is to have a nature that's a principle of a single motion. It's a circular motion around the cosmos's center. But the heavenly bodies form, it's realized in a distinctive kind of matter called ether. And ether's sole material capacity is a capacity to move circularly, right? Fire moves up or it moves down, ether moves in a circle in the cosmos. And so the end of a heavenly body's nature and the end of heavenly bodies, bodies matter, they're exactly the same. Um, and this accordance, and the absence of anything else getting in the way, stopping it, guarantees that celestial movement is eternal, blessed, and without toil. But our lives are not heavenly or divine. Um, why are we not like the stars? What precludes the ends of our tissues material capacities being consonant with our ensouled body's natural end? Um, I mean, if there were a matter that moved by nature as a human being does, we could, as long as nothing external intervened and killed us off, be immortal. Now, Aquinas, he raises this very possibility when he's discussing whether death is natural to man. This is in T12. He says, the fact that it, the human body, is corruptible is due to a condition of the matter and is not chosen by nature. Indeed, nature would choose an incorruptible matter if it could. It's like with the stars, if you could find a matter that would match up completely with what we do, um, nature would choose this. Now, this phrase, nature's choice, um, doesn't literally attribute kind of conscious, rational deliberation to inanimate natural processes. But it does reflect an important analogy that both Aristotle and Aquinas accept. Both are committed to some version of what's commonly called the nature-craft analogy. And this allows a sort of a limited extension of insights about the voluntary actions of a master craftsman, an artificer, uh, those actions that they perform to the natural movements involved in the generation of living organisms. And in particular, the question, um, which of an artifact's material capacities is an artificer responsible for when she produces an artifact? This is going to be analogous for them to the question, which of an organism's material capacities is its form responsible for when an organism comes to be? And consequently, answering the question about artificers will allow us to adjudicate between the two accounts of death's cause that I've been discussing. So according to Aquinas, an artificer is only responsible for the presence of material capacities in the artifact she produces that are explicitly, hypothetically necessitated by the artifact's form. I'll, go into, I'll describe this in more detail soon. This is just a, a, an initial summary. And Aristotle, by contrast, I think, um, maintains that an artificer is responsible for all of the capacities she is reasonably aware will be present in the matter that she chooses when she produces an artifact, even if they're not um, narrowly, hypothetically necessitated by the artifact's form. So I'm gonna describe why they arrive at these different views and argue that to side with Aquinas is to adopt the material cause account of death and to side with, uh, to side with Aristotle is to adopt the formal account. 
And I'll begin with Aquinas. Um, there are <coughs> two passages where Aquinas explicitly draws this analogy between the way in which an organism's form is a cause of its tissues, material capacities, and the way in which an artificer's kind of form-directed movements are causes of an artifact's material capacities. These are 13 and 14. They're slightly long, but it's, I think it's worth just reading through them because uh, Aquinas' words are better than my summary of them would be. <laughs> so first, 13 says, if there could be in nature a body composed of elements and the body were to be indissoluble, such a body would undoubtedly be naturally suitable for the soul. Just so, if one could find iron incapable of breaking or rusting, it would be most suitable matter for a saw, and a blacksmith would seek it. But because one cannot find such iron, the blacksmith takes such as he can find, namely hard but breakable iron. And likewise, since there can be no body composed of elements that is by nature, uh, by the nature of matter, indissoluble, an organic but dissoluble body is by nature suitable for the soul that cannot pass away. But since God, who creates human beings, could, by his omnipotence, prevent this necessity of matter from coming about, his power conferred on human beings before sin, that they may be preserved from death, until they, by sinning, prove themselves unworthy of such a benefit. Just so a blacksmith, if he could, would endow the iron he molds with the incapacity to break. I mean, blacksmiths don't have that power, even in the, um, that's if the, the saw did something like sinning, that would uh, uh, give them a reason to pull back and no longer um, um, provide that. Okay. In the second passage, we may note a twofold condition in any matter, one which the agent chooses and another which is not chosen by the agent and is a natural condition of the matter. Thus, a smith, in order to make a knife, chooses a matter both hard and flexible, which could be sharpened so as to be useful for cutting. And in respect of this condition, iron is a matter adapted for a knife. But that iron be breakable and inclined to rust results from the natural disposition of iron. Nor does the workman choose this in the iron. Indeed, he would do without it if he could. Wherefore, this disposition of matter is not adapted to the workman's intention, nor to the purposes of his art. So let's consider a particular kind of artificer, um, artificer sorry, say a, a cutler. Cutlers are knife makers. So a cutler aims to realize a knife form in matter in accordance with the body of knowledge that constitutes their art. Um, he will choose from among the materials that are reasonably available to him, the one that best suits the particular form of knife he's producing. But according to Aquinas, the cutler's choice concerns only those material characteristics that the knife form explicitly, hypothetically necessitates. Um, that is, the cutler's choice of matter only concerns the sort of capacities it must have or would be best for it to have in order for a particular knife to come to be and execute its function, namely cutting well. Um, explanations of their choices will be parallel to the sort of explanation I gave concerning eyes and eyelids, right? You start with what a knife is, which um, what a knife is is determined by its function, it's for cutting. And so in order for a knife to cut and cut well, you're, it's going to have to have certain properties, right? It's going to have to be the sort of thing that could, you know, not break easily and can keep a, um, keep, be sharpened and keep sharp. But um, being inclined to rust isn't something that you have to choose in order for 
the knife to perform its function well. Um, it just happens to be a feature of the material that you do choose for, for the reasons of um, um, bringing about the knife, right? Um, so all other material characteristics, um, the one that aren't directly related to the realization of that particular um, form of knife, um, that the chosen matter may have, fall outside the cutler's artistic intentions and hence outside his sphere of responsibility. Um, so for Aquinas, the cutler's responsible for the knife having a matter that's hard and is able to stay sharp, but is not responsible for it being disposed to rust. Now, an organism's nature also aims to realize a form, namely the organism's uh, soul itself. And like the artificer, um, in every case, when several paths are open, nature always chooses the best. And in this way, an organism's nature is the formal cause of those material capacities that its tissues must have, or that it would be best for them to have, for an individual with that nature to come to be and to live well. Um, but if what Aquinas says about craftspeople applies to organisms, an organism's nature will not be a formal cause of any material capacity that it's not explicitly hypothetically necessitate. For example, um, an organism capable of touch can only come to be if it contains tissues that possess kind of intermediate thermal and hydric capacities. It can't be too hot or too cold or too wet or too dry. The details of why this is are um, interesting, but beyond this. Um, um, but they are going to have a level of hardness, a level of heaviness or lightness. They are going to have some sort of locomotive capacity. And those are the material capacities primarily opposed to an ensouled body's natural end. Those are the, really the ones that are pulling us apart. But they aren't hypothetically necessitated. Um, and so their presence does not have the soul as a formal cause. All right, would Aristotle agree with this analysis of what's going on with the cutler? According to Aristotle, um, when an artificer chooses a matter, his action is voluntary. And I state briefly on the handout what um, he means by voluntary here. Uh, action's performance is contingent, not necessitated. The origin of action is internal to the craftsperson. That's not, it's not externally compelled. And most importantly, the third one, um, the artificer is aware of both what he is doing and what he is bringing about in so acting. And it's these kinds of actions, voluntary actions, that Aristotle thinks are apt for praise and blame. And this is because the agent of a voluntary action is responsible not only uh, for not only his action, but in some sense, everything he ought to know is involved in its performance as well. So a cutler is the cause not just of a particular knife's coming to be, but if it's coming to be with the material capacities, it would be reasonable for him to know are present in the matter he chooses. And this knowledge isn't going to be limited to those material capacities that the, the form he aims to realize narrowly requires. Um, so on this view, it would follow that the cutler can be praised or blamed for bringing about a knife with the capacity to rust, since they know this is a property of iron, which they're choosing, even though they aren't choosing the iron because it's inclined to rust. They're choosing it for other reasons, but they knowingly um, um, are choosing a matter with this property. Now, as before, we can extend this analogically to the soul's role in an organism's generation. And if we do, um, an organism's nature will be the formal cause of all of its tissues, material capacities, not just those that it must have or those that it would be best for it to have. An organism's soul is 
responsible in this extended way for its tissues material capacities and can be praised and blamed for those capacities subsequent exercises. Now, of course, no one would denounce the masterful choices of an ancient Athenian cutler, um, nor would such a cutler regret their choices. So, for example, we ought not criticize them for failing to utilize tempered stainless steel over two millennia ago. Um, iron was the best available material at the time from which a knife could come to be, and they could have chosen a material that wouldn't rust, say bronze or obsidian, but um, these available materials, they have other capacities that on the whole would make them worse choices than iron, right? So obsidian blades, you can, they can be incredibly sharp, but they're far from durable. They break easily if you have any kind of lateral force on them, just snapping them. So they, make, they did make the right choices. And though there was, at the time, they, you know, this Athenian cutler played their art, there's a possible material from which a knife could be fashioned that um, doesn't rust. And there's, you know, their stainless steel was possible, even though it wasn't a reasonable alternative for them at the time. Um, there's no possible material from which a knife can be fashioned that does not possess some capacities that would entail its inevitable destruction. So neither blame nor regret should arise over artistic choices that fail to yield an eternal knife. But it doesn't follow, according to Aristotle, that the cutler's not responsible for the presence of those properties in question. Um, the cutler's subject to praise and blame for its um, being inclined to rust the knife, even if neither praise nor blame is, is forthcoming. And similarly, there's no possible matter from which a terrestrial organism can come to be that's not ultimately deleterious. All bodies that come to be by nature and art possess some material capacity for the contrary, and consequently, all such bodies will cease to be at some point. Nature chooses the best available path, but there's no path available, nor will there ever be a path available that leads to the destination our souls seek. So given this impossibility, we ought not uh, blame our souls for not being immortal, but it does not follow that our souls are not responsible for the presence of the material capacities in question. Right? Our souls are subject to praise and blame, either, um, even if neither is forthcoming. So if our form of life were different, if it were like that of the stars, there would be an incorruptible matter available from which we could come to be. But given the form of life we actually lead, corruption is inevitable. And on the formal account of death, one can't explain our corruptibility without appealing to our form. So we have two views about what causes death. Um, and I've argued that the best way to decide between them is to answer a question about what an artificer is responsible for through their voluntary productive actions. Um, now, I haven't settled that second question. And so the former one, why do we die, remains open as well. I mean, answering the question about action um, involves a lot of issues, right? The relationship between the voluntary and the intentional, the so-called doctrine of double effect, the very concept of responsibility. I'm happy to discuss all of these. <laughs> um, but I would like to conclude just by very briefly noting that how one answers these questions does have significant implications for one's general view of the world. Proponents of the material cause account of death, they adopt a certain picture of the world. The movements of a continuously and importantly, autonomously changing material world, they're occasionally but inadequately checked by the unifying activity of stable and unchanging forms. Proponents of the formal account adopt a different view of the world. 
For them, when an organism dies, this is not to be explained in terms of its autonomously understood matter, overcoming the soul's unifying form-directed activity. Exercise of an organism's uh, tissues material capacities, even those that, are ulti that ultimately lead to the organism's death, are irreducibly for the sake of the further realization and perpetuation of the organism's specific form of life. Um, death is guaranteed, but it's the predictable breakdown of an intrinsically unstable natural union. So the choices between viewing a living organism as the result of its soul systematically constraining the movements of an otherwise inanimate world and viewing a living organism as a natural unity that's in an important sense set apart from the remainder of its inanimate environment. Living organisms are either whirlpools or vortices within a plenary sea of Empedoclean matter or their islands. That's it, thank you. You want to just immediately go into questions? People, if they need to sneak out, then I won't be offended. Um, um, does that sound right? Sure. Does anyone have any questions about any of this? Yes. Um, I was wondering, could you talk about your thoughts, Aristotle's thoughts, and Aquinas' thoughts about resurrection and the new bodies, and how that would fit into the election we were talking about? You know, I mean, nobody knows, right? But I didn't know if you had yes. Yes, so your question was about um, their views about bodily resurrection, what the status of matter would be there. Um, well, Aristotle doesn't think this is going to occur, so that one is easy to, to set aside. Um, I, I'll, say, I'll say some things about what Aquinas thinks about this. Um, I don't know if my views are so settled as to differ from his, right? Um, so... There, there's a longstanding question about whether, like say for Aristotle, when an organism dies, whether their soul persists independently from matter. Um, this was a debate that even the early commentators on Aristotle had differing views about what he thought, and um, the text kind of undetermines an answer. So it's the sort of thing that people will continue writing about looking for um, evidence. Aquinas certainly thought that, at least in some ways, the soul persists after, uh, after we die, and that at a later moment, it will be reunited with a body of some sort. Uh, now, at this time, um, the body that comes to be and then is reunified with the soul, it, the, the process isn't the same as generation for our initial generation, right? It's not... Um, we aren't reborn in the right way, right? It's, it's, an, it's an adult body. I think we all come back roughly at age 33, I think, because that's the, where, where we peak, right? You got to peak at the time Christ died because he would never die at any other time, right? Than the, the, the greatest possible one for a human being to, to be at. Um, and it's as well-suited as a body can be for a human life. So there'd be no... Um, no kind of natural defects to it. So there are all sorts of odd discussions like, well, like let's say you were born without an arm. Um, when you come back 
at the resurrection, do you have an arm? He says, yes, all of that will be back. Um, he fashions it out of the matter from like hair trimmings and nail clippings, right? Like, like matter, break it down to its basic elements and rebuild it and make it part of us. Um, and the matter that comes back to us is the sort of matter that we first, our souls first informed, right? Um, so there's kind of like a, a, a land grab, right? Whoever, whoever's, you know, take any inanimate bodies, whoever's soul was first informed it, you've kind of, um, you've kind of laid a claim to that matter. And then it's available as kind of identified with you to be fashioned into the body that you ultimately have. Um, I guess, I mean, I suppose one could worry that over time you'd run out of matter to lay a claim to, right? Because if someone passes away and their matter goes back into the earth and a plant takes it up and you eat the fruit of that plant, any matter that was already claimed by someone else, it can't be claimed by you a second time, even if it becomes part of your body. So there are lots of strange discussions and Aquinas about like the effects of cannibalism or things of this, like when you're, when you're directly taking on that other matter. But um, um, this matter will be like perfectly suited. Uh, still, the matter is by its nature going to have these material capacities that go um, in different directions. And so presumably, God would have to do what he did for our bodies in Eden. There'd have to be some supernatural gift of grace to our souls that would um, prevent all of this matter in us from constantly flowing out and for even the need to, to eat, to, um, to let back in. There's the only, the only reasons why you would need to eat ever is if you need to grow, right? If you just need more matter to make tissues out of or if you just need to replace what's left to maintain yourself. But if nothing's, if no matter's leaving, you wouldn't even need to, to do that once resurrected. Um, I don't think we, I don't think we need to eat after that. Um, maybe you could for pleasure, but not for, not, not in the normal nutritive way. Is that, so I don't, I don't have any views beyond that. I'd say that's what Aquinas thought about it. Um, um, and uh, yeah, Aristotle doesn't have the same felt need to explain what would happen at the resurrection um, um, since he's not, he's not uh, advancing that. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, maybe a chain of questions. I don't know how to name it or to relate them. But the uh, first question is what, what do you think that is total or most people about the and yourself? Are reminded when they say matter. Oh, so what? 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 Um, matter. What is matter? This is hard. There, there are two different ways of approaching this, right? Um, one sense is matter is just the stuff you'd point to in someone and say they're made out of that, right? So, um, um, the matter of a human being would be its body, its various organs and the tissues they're made up of. So my matter, it's bone and flesh and sinew and so on. And we can look at its characteristics and study them in very much the same way we'd study inanimate bodies, right? Um, so, you know, when he's describing material processes that occur within a human being, say like in digestion, the moving and cutting and concocting and so on, um, it's very much like the sort of explanations he'd give for inanimate phenomena. Um, 
But there's another sense of matter um, where it's not just pointing to a kind of stuff or several kinds of stuff. Um, the, the reason why you speak of matter at all is because we are the sort of things that undergo change. Um, and he's got a view that in order to understand any change, you have to view the change as being a change in something's matter. So it's uh, something's matter that undergoes change at one point in time, it has a certain feature, but it lacks another. And then what the change is, is uh, um, it's ceasing to have the original feature and coming to have a new one, right? So, so an example of this, you know, if you have Socrates and he's sitting down and then he stands up, there are three things you need to describe. The initial condition, him not being standing, the, the, the later condition, him standing, and then the thing that undergoes the change, which he calls the matter. In this case, it would be Socrates, the individual. But that's like a, an accidental change, standing to sitting to standing. Um, but the, the same account he gives is even for the coming to be of something, the generation of something, right? So um, again, they like, both, both Aristotle and Aquinas, they like this nature craft analogy. So, you know, if you have a statue uh, at one point in time, it doesn't have the form of Hercules, say you're molding that out of bronze. Um, and at a later time it does, right? After you've chipped away at it, the sculpture. And there is something that persists throughout the change. The thing that at the earlier time didn't have the property and later time did. And again, he calls that the, the matter. Um, in this case, it would be bronze. Um, but there's a slight difference between thinking of the matter as just kind of specifying a kind of stuff, bronze, and thinking of the matter as a principle of change, right? The thing that undergoes the change, the, the, what they call the substratum. Um, so, so anything that changes needs to have some kind of matter. Um, and that's going to be what persists throughout the change. Um, so what do we mean when we say that matter corrupts? Yeah. Okay. Uh, because the way I look at it is that matter made of not only atoms, but uh, six atomic particles. Mm -hmm. Okay. And whatever happens, they can change. Okay. And then you, you transform them into energy. Yeah. Okay. And uh, or what you have, energy is matter. And uh, in my mind, when I think about corruption, what I have is what I picture is the organization of those mm -hmm. particles that particle. Okay, yeah. So, but, but not the matter itself. So you're 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 asking whether the matter has to change and be something other than what it is for there to oh, be what corruption. That, what do you mean by corruption? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So so I think you're right. Um um. So, so the, the changes that the matter's undergoing that ultimately lead the organism to die, the ones he focuses on are mostly changes in location, right? Um, they're, they're, and those aren't changes to the kind of matter in question, right? Um, so, so as you said, if you were thinking about it in contemporary terms, in terms of atoms, um, it's not as if there needed to be something like nuclear decay, where one atom breaks down and two different kinds of atoms with different places on the periodic table would come to be for there to be corruption. They would just have to move to different areas. Um, and so you're right, this is 
it doesn't require, at least on this material account, it doesn't require that the matter in some sense fundamentally change the kind of thing it is. It just changes its location in a way that undermines the, the organization. Um, I will say the formal cause account, at least in its strongest form, does think that there is a more fundamental kind of change that occurs in matter, say, when you die. Um, so on this view, they think the, the role that form plays in tissues being what they are and having the material character that they have, it's not just getting some inanimate bodies and getting them in the right place or structuring them in the right way. It, it affects what that matter, the very kind of matter it is. There's a difference between bone and flesh and sinew and inanimate bodies that may, under a microscope, look to have the same sort of physical or material properties. Um, um, and so we'll often say things like, you know, flesh in a corpse and flesh in a living body are flesh in name only, right? To really be flesh, you have to be performing the sort of biological role that the tissue plays within a living organism. And this isn't just something that an inanimate body takes on this job. It's part of identifying the very kind of matter it is. Um, we aren't, on this view, we aren't made up of inanimate bodies that are put to work doing certain jobs. We're made up of kind of fundamentally living tissues. And then when we die and the soul's no longer present, part of what death is, is there's a transition, in the, even in the matter. It ceases being something like bone or flesh. It becomes just any old inanimate body. And then inanimate bodies do what they do. That's what he says perfection looks like. So, um, so it's a, sorry, this is a long answer to your question. Depending on which view of life and death you take on, you're gonna have a slightly, maybe not slightly, an importantly different account of what's going on in the matter because you're gonna be viewing the matter itself differently. The sort of material cause of account, um, it really is a view in which kind of the inanimate bodies that are in you are just like the same inanimate bodies elsewhere. And that's kind of, I think, the view most people have these days. That's kind of the contemporary view of things. Um, you know, the carbon in my body is the same carbon you'd find out in the inanimate world. Um, whereas on the, the formal account, the form, um, it's not just responsible for putting inanimate bodies in the right place. It, in some sense, is causing these living tissues to come to be. Um, and, and what the tissues are, what the matter that makes us up is, um, one can't understand it without appreciating the role that form played in their generation. And so on this view, um, there's in some sense nothing present in us materially that would be the same kind of thing you'd find out there in the inanimate world, even though you know, the molecular biologist can use the same sorts of explanations, but um, it is a different kind of stuff, human tissue. Um. Thank you. Uh, Kelly. Um, I'm wondering if the material, the, you've drawn the distinction between the material and the formal account of death. I'm wondering, are, are they mutually exclusive or can they be answering different questions? Because, uh, it's not clear to me that Aquinas can also, like, can, I think Aquinas can give the material account answer, but also can agree with the formal stuff you said. 
Um, okay, so you're, you're thinking that the two aren't inconsistent. So can he say it? Well, one, I, I think at least for Aquinas, he doesn't say it, right? So, so um, he's fine with thinking that certain material capacities you'd want to say that the form is the principal cause of their being there, right? Um, so he focuses a lot on the organ of touch. What you, you know, what needs, you know, let, let's say you've got an organism that's capable of touch. They're gonna need flesh, that's the medium for this, which we, you know, encounter hot and cold things. And they think um, in order for this medium to work, it's gotta be, it, all of its its heat and its moisture have to be right in the middle. Yeah. That's what's going to be hypothetically necessitated. And this has to do with the fact that um, uh, you need it to be kind of open to, to being receptive to a wide range of temperatures and levels of moisture to perceive them through touch. And if, you know, if it were too hot, you wouldn't be able to feel hot things. Um, and if you're too cold, you wouldn't be able to feel cold thing. By being in the middle, you're in some sense able to be open. Right? In order for this organ to work well, it's got to have those properties. But there's, there's nothing at all about the sense of touch that would require in any way that the body be heavy or light. Um, it just, those features don't actually have any bearing on whether the organ would work well. And so he thinks, um, if the heat and the level of moisture were what's responsible for the human's decay, well, then, then your soul would be on the hook, right? Um, it's what caused it to be. But, these, but the other things, the soul isn't responsible for them being there. It's just, it's responsible for it being warm and being intermediately watery. And it just turns out, look around at the materials you've got available. The only things that you could make your flesh out of that would have those that temperature, it's also going to be um, uh, fairly light, at least in comparison to other tissues. And so it's going to be pulling away from the rest of your body. But nature didn't choose that. Right? So, so nature's not responsible for the specific material features that lead to death. Um, so that's... Uh, so, I mean, that's his the explanation he gives. Could he have given a view in which it was responsible in this way? Um, I mean, I suppose so. Like, if, if there really were, if you really um, couldn't have, like, if, if in order for, like, a human being to function the way they do, they had to have organs where the level of heaviness and lightness really mattered, um, well, then... The soul would be responsible in the wrong kind of way for their presence and would be responsible for our dying, but he doesn't think that's the case. Um, is that, please follow up with me. I guess I would just, with respect to the, I mean, maybe I'll have to think through more what I'm asking, but, I mean, but it seems to me, at least with, I mean, so Aquinas right, has this, a strong notion of moral causing, and I think that's, I just want in response to the prior question about is, it literally changes the matter. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I'm just curious if you just ask, it, like, that, that, I, I think the right gets the, the sort of material cause that uh, account of death, but I'm just, yeah, I'll have to think more about like, what specifically I'm trying to ask. 
I mean, I think it is helpful just to, I actually find the, the, the Crafts case easier to get traction on, right? I mean, he, he is making a parallel claim about what the Crafts person is responsible for. Now, in some sense, the Crafts person is responsible, I mean, they, they choose, let, let's say they choose iron, right? And iron's got a lot of properties. It's, it's gonna be strong, it can, take a, it can take a sharpening and hold up. It's also gonna be inclined to rust. It's got like a long, series of properties. Um, and in some sense, the craftsperson, they voluntarily chose it. Um, but you have to go into the reasons why, what their intentions were in choosing it. What were the reasons for choosing it? And the reasons they choose are the ones that they, you know, they're choosing it because of the properties that it would need, you know, the matter would need to have in order for the knife to come to be and execute its function well. So the only reason it chooses the iron is because it's strong and it can be sharpened. They don't choose it because it's inclined to rust, but it turns out the hardest and most sharpenable and best material is one that rusts. And so that's gonna happen, right? But he thinks you don't blame them for that because it's outside of their choice. Um, he's taking the, the relevant sphere of responsibility to be what they intentionally choose, not what they voluntarily bring about, which is wider. Right? Whereas Aristotle's taking the voluntary to be the domain of praise and blame. And that's gonna include not just the kind of, you know, the description under which they're acting, right? Which is closer to their intentional choice, right? Like if you ask them why they chose it, they wouldn't say because it will rust. Right? Um, um, and so he's going to make a similar distinction with the soul regarding tissues, right? Um, um, it's only some of the material features that are the reason why that matter's chosen, even though it has other material features. It's the other ones that lead us to die. And so the soul's not on the hook for those in the same way um, that the, the crass person's not on the hook for rusting. Whereas Aristotle, if he has the broader notion of what you're responsible for, um, it would include those things. Because in an extended sense, nature knows um, um, the tissues are going to have be heavier light and fire. Um, uh, Chris? Uh, how do we, like, I guess the analogy to a certain extent, but how do we think about like, the intentionality or like, how nature chooses, given that like, human choice relates to like usefulness or pleasure or beauty and like ultimately like happiness. Like, does nature yeah. have like an ultimate good? And what is that? Yeah, so, so, yeah, so you're, you're questioning the, the, you're questioning the nature craft analogy, right? Whether the kinds, the kind of concept of choosing and acting voluntarily and having an end that you take to be good does apply over to natural generation and so. Um, and there are obviously going to be different differences. I mean, analogies aren't identities, right? Like um, you're going to focus on the things that are helpful to, to understanding. Um, but there's more overlap than you might initially think, right? So when you're talking about nature choosing, again, it's not that there's some sort of deliberation, yeah. um, but there it is an activity that occurs for the sake of some end, and this end he does take to be a good, right? Um, um, so in the narrowest case, 
the end for a living organism is that things very form, which is good for it, right? So, um, sorry, this is complicated, so this will be very rough, but um, there's a kind of development that comes in living organisms, right? You, you bury an acorn, eventually an oak tree arises, and this happens in a predictable way, right? Um, if everything goes well, we can specify in some sense what an ideal form of, would be realized in an oak tree, right? Um, if they're in the wrong environment or there's not enough nutrition or something goes wrong in the development, he would view that as somehow not completely realizing the form. And all of these natural activities, the ultimate end is the complete realization of the specific kind of life in question. Um, and that's a good thing, right? Um, um, it's, this is true of human beings as well, right? You need to specify what it is to be a human being and to, uh, it's to live a certain kind of life and to be a good human being is to perform that activity well. In our case, it's a certain kind of rational activity. Um, and uh, what we do in acting is directed towards this end. Um, um, in some sense, when we fully realized our form, um, um, that's what the good for a human being is. Now, in our case, it's complicated because we've got, we can make choices about this, right? And the choices we make about how to live, we might take our end to be something other than what our natural end is. And then we aren't pursuing a life devoted to the full realization of our rational capacities or something. There could be conflict. Um, but that doesn't mean there isn't a natural end. And, and he, he does think that in, in, you know, in explanations of just even biological development, you have to view them in this way, that it's occurring for an end, and you view this end as something good. I mean, ultimately, the good that generally applies to all things is being. Everything is trying to be to the extent that it can. And to be for a human being is to, it's constrained by the kind of things we are. What our form is, it's different than what it is to be for a sunflower or a Bengal tiger. Um, but we're all, all natural movement is striving towards that good. Um, ultimately, it's all striving towards the thing that has the most being, which is his divine principle. And so you get some weird claims that all things in nature move for the sake of loving God or something. <laughs> but, but again, you aren't, you aren't attributing human conscious love <laughs> to this, but it's, it's a similar principle. Can you speak up just a little bit? Sorry. Yeah. Um, so, so I think this is related to the second last question. So um, I think what that question is getting at is given this account of um, a material cause of decay and the formal cause of decay, and then you attach to each of those a view where um, on the material account, the matter in question is the same kind as matter in general at the world. Mm -hmm. There's sort of not a distinction between informed matter and uninformed Whereas in the formal account, there's this difference in time. Informed matter is somehow fundamentally different than uninformed matter in a way that's much more robust than on the other. Mm -hmm. And I sort of think it's this, the second last question, what is what is for getting at? Well, it seems like, you know, Aquinas wants to endorse on your reading 
the material account of the day, not the formal account of the day. And it seems like, especially given your response to the about reincarnation, mm -hmm. you might think there's a very strong tendency in Aquinas to go in for a kind of, well, informed matter is different in kind than uninformed matter. So much so that as soon as matter's been informed, we can use it in, you know, the resurrected body. Um, and, and so I took it to what the, what the technological question was driving at was, well, wait a minute. I mean, there are these two sort of pieces of each account. Mm -hmm. and how are they connected together? And why are we connecting? I mean, it seems like, in some ways, the clients of you fit better with the sort of radical distinction between informed matter and uninformed matter. Okay. Thank you. This is very helpful. So just to repeat for the the, the microphone. Um, yes. Yeah, so I've been. Um, and so this is probably probably wrong for me to do to, to to align these two positions so closely, right? The material account of death and the formal account of death, and the view in which you have to see the matter that one is made up of as somehow something you could completely understand independently of the role of form plays or something whose very kind of nature, what it is to be the kind of matter is ineliminably dependent on, on the role that, that form played is coming to be. And you're certainly right that, that all right, so in, in this case, Aquinas would occupy a position where he would take opposing Sides, right? He he endorses the material account of death, but he is someone who thinks that the soul's role is somehow transformative for the matter. Um, yeah, so I do I I do think that is right. Though he's kind of rare in this way. Um, um, I mean, just sociologically, it's just a, a a number of you know the kind of people who defend one view or the other. The, the view where it's the same kind of matter as anywhere else fits very naturally with the material account, right? You, you see the soul as somehow um, a force in opposition to the inanimate and that you view the sort of conflict in us as you know, the presence of the inanimate within us doing what inanimate things do and needing some kind of external check, keeping it in place. Um, Though there is, you are right, there is room for at least someone, Aquinas is this someone, to think that, that there's something transformative when inanimate bodies come to be integrated into an organism where you can't entirely just think of our tissues as being the same sort of thing. Um, but he does still hold on the material account of death because even in these transformed tissues, only some of their material properties is, are, is the soul going to be the formal cause of, right? Just those that it had to have in order for the tissue to perform its vital function, right? To, to, to do what it does. And he kind of quite universally thinks that the, the material properties that our transformed tissues happen to have that lead to decay and disorder and, and matter fleeing those are outside of the sole responsibility. It's not choosing them. They're just kind of materially necessary consequences of the, the properties it 
does choose. Um, um, I'm trying to think if, if you could have another view where you had the form, I mean, I suppose you could also have something like the formal account of death and, and think that there's no deep transformation going on, that it's the same inanimate stuff, though that's, um, I'm, I'm not aware of anyone who advances that, but it's, it's on the open menu of positions. Um, um, but the two, two, just statistically speaking, do tend to go in other directions. Um, yeah, so that does seem right. Um, but you do, you do still have to view, I, you do still have to view the material movements that lead to one's death, right? Especially the, the, the locomotive movements. Um, as in a way, as in a way somewhat more alienated from the kind of essential form of living of the organism, right? Um, they weren't material properties that were chosen as being essentially needed as, as part of living that kind of life. They're kind of, um, they, they're tagalongs, <laughs> like um, um, they, they have to be there because there's not, there was like no other material available that you could get the things you really needed that didn't have these extra things. Um, at least on the Aristotelian view of transformation that I've been putting forward, um, all of the material properties would somehow be in some way more integrated within the living organism, right? Um, um, insofar as the soul would be responsible for them all, um, even the ones that lead to decay, they aren't entirely alien to the kind of living that a human being is engaged in, right? Um, so you aren't, so this is this is a more subtle way of distinguishing things, which I think is right, but not as clean. <laughs> um, um, so, so you could view, let, let's say, just just the locomotive tendencies, the ones that really rip us apart, as still being opposed to the kind of life we live. That that seems like a pretty central part of the way, just the overall worldview of the the Thomistic picture. Right? even if they're part of transformed matter. Um, whereas for Aristotle, at least the way I'm, I'm viewing it, um, you even view those movements as not so much opposed to the kind of life that a human lives, right? but as part of what it is to live a human life. It's something that is, by its very nature, as the phrase I was using is intrinsically unstable. Right? Um, it's uh, um, it's not a life that involves movements that are opposed to it, but the very kind of life is one that's going to break down. Um, you see even those movements of things breaking off as part of what it is to live a human life and not just um, kind of necessary, materially opposed um, um, things that are preventing you from living your life. Right? Um, that's, that, that's in some sense the, I mean, that's the kind of difference in worldview I'm after. Like whether, whether you're, the extent to which you're seeing the forces that lead to our deaths is somehow alien from the kind of life that we lead, right? 
whether you're viewing the living of a human life as something that, that your matter is somehow opposed to and the matter is responsible, or if you see the living of a human life instead as something that um, um, part of that living, not in opposition to it, but part of the very living of a human life involves your tissues decaying and moving in the way that, that ultimately leads to, to aging and death. Is that? Oh, yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead, Doug. Um, so you say it seems like on both accounts, decay or corruption was a result of a kind of mismatch between form and matter. Yeah. That seemed like a common feature of both views. And so on the way you just described the Aristotelian views, it sounds like you're thinking of life as itself entailing. I mean, the informing yeah. of the matter entails that um, there's got to be a consonant between matter and form. Yeah. And so the form is fully responsible for the material parts of its life. And, and so I, I guess I'm, if decay is always has to come out through a mismatch between form and matter, where is the sort of mismatch and where is the consonant? Yeah. So you're asking about the way I framed both in terms of mismatch. The, the way the way mismatch. Yeah. 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 So. So. Whether it's appropriate to describe there, that death ultimately be due, due to a mismatch between our kind of natural and and our material capacities ends on both views. And the mismatch ends up having a slightly different flavor in both cases, right? One, it's a clear opposition, right? Um, even if the matter's transformed, you see these two things as, as you know, the, the material movements are viewed as somehow external to anything having to do with living a human life. And so they're in direct opposition. Um, on the Aristotelian view, at least as I'm understanding it, there's still a mismatch, but you aren't going to view it as being oppositional in precisely the same way, right? So on this view, even the movements that lead to the decay of your organs, right, all these movements in place, um, those would still be part of living a human life, right? The single activity whose end is the full realization form. Um, just as much as all of the other activities going on, right? It's a sort of natural unified single activity directed at a single end. Um, so it's not a mismatch in that way, right? Um, but there is still a kind of mismatch that comes just from viewing what, you know, any materially embodied lived human life ends up having to be, that single activity and just what you would get in the specification of our essence, what our form is. There's nothing, there, there's still both agree that there's nothing about the human soul or the human form, if you just said what it is to be a human, where death ends up being a part of it, right? If you, if you want to say what it is to be a human, you, as, as he was mentioning with the Aristotle, with the lines about the poet, um, you don't specify the end state, you specify the good state, the perfect state, right? You, you say, what condition would a human being be in to be a perfect exemplar, right? To be fully realizing its form. And there's nothing in that that says anything about death. 
It's like, in some sense, if if your if your soul could, right? If nature like this, if nature could choose something, it would choose something that would be in no way mismatched. But on your soul's view, the only thing it can choose is a material that's going to ultimately lead to decay. It's a question of whether you're you're viewing the end result of this, right? Like an embodied living organism as, as um, um, somehow a single kind of unified life that there's no way it could persist and continue, that it's unstable in this way, that it's going to break down, but it's an intrinsic breakdown, not an extrinsic one, or whether you're viewing those forces as somehow outside of what's even properly living the sort of life that human beings lead. Thank you so much, Professor. Oh, thank you.